This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Radio Therapy. We're starting off um, here with a few snippets of news from around the world of medicine and psychiatry. And I'm here with uh, Dr. Vyom Sharma, our resident GP magician, uh, and myself, Perry Partum, and we may well be... Um, just the two of us here in the studio with the able assistance of our friend Kent behind the machines. So um, let's get started on a bit of catch up and then we'll move into what else we're going to be talking about, which is in particular what I'm fascinated by and going to have a little bit of a rant about, which is the passage of the voluntary assisted dying legislation in the Victorian Parliament on Friday, which is historic and huge and amazing and I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about it today and uh, Dr Sharma will be talking also about what's happening in the World Health Organization. Oh yeah what is happening over there? (laughs) So we've got lots of political news for you this morning. Welcome and good morning. Okay, everybody, get another cup of tea, um, sit back down next to the heater and give us an hour of your time. We're going to be talking about a couple of different things this morning. Um, But before I get into my rant about assisted dying, I wanted to talk a little bit about a documentary that I saw on iview, Mm -hmm. which is still available. It's called... Uh, the Secret Life of Manic Depressives. And so not terribly politically correct, I would have thought, but it's actually a follow-up to a documentary that was made about 10 years ago by Stephen Fry, um, who famously suffers from bipolar disorder. And it follows him and several other people who experience the illness and talks a little bit about what it's like living with a diagnosis like that from their perspective. So, Mm. you know, follows them around, talks to their partners, talks to their doctors. And I actually thought it was a really good way of uh, providing people with an insight of what the lived experience is, which is something that you really very rarely get an opportunity to see. So this one also involves Stephen Fry or was this... Yeah, it does. So um, actually he... Uh, soon after the first documentary was aired he went to Uganda uh, a few years ago I think it was in 2014 and over there I think he was protesting against the fairly draconian um, anti-same-sex legislation that they've passed over there and I think he found it a very stressful and distressing experience and he actually made a suicide attempt in a hotel room in Uganda and they talk about that in the documentary Wow. Yeah, he's very open. I think it's great because I think it would be very difficult to be a public figure like that and have all of your private um, uh, uh, challenges and and flaws and weaknesses on display. But I think he does it because he feels it's so important. That's right. And it is quite a brave thing to do because once you take that step out into the public sphere, there's no going back. Like, if you want to go back, people will call you out for being disingenuous and, you know, it's, it's like this one-time kind of contract you've signed and that's it. But, I mean, he has just been the epitome of honesty and, and bravery when it's come to this stuff. Um, when you mentioned that, that suicide attempt, I, I, he's, I mean, he's said so many things on mental health. Um, he's very famously published that letter that he had written to himself, I think, as like a, as a 16 or an 18-year-old child. I don't know if you remember this. No, I don't. Um, so it just begins right from, 
you know, from his kind of young adulthood up till now, it's it's you've got this kind of autobiography of emotional and intellectual honesty, and uh, it, there's just so much to learn from, uh, from from his life work. But incredibly brave stuff. Really brave, and his autobiographies. I think there are several of them now, and they also talk in a lot of detail about his struggles with his mental health, even as a teenager as well. Uh, and <laughs> what I think is, is great about it is that he does let you see the kind of the good and the bad and the kind of uh, poorly considered. So he has this conversation with his psychiatrist on the documentary where uh, his psychiatrist is talking about the stresses that are involved in being Stephen Fry, like, you know, going around the world into different time zones and being sleep deprived, both of which we know have an impact on management of bipolar disorder. Sure. Uh, and Stephen says to his doctor, oh, it's fine, I know how to get some sleep. I just have a lot of alcohol and Xanax. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> <laughs> and so responsibly, as all psychiatrists should, the psychiatrist takes him down for that and says that's just not, the, that's not a great way to manage things. You're managing your mood by taking a depressant. He's taking two depressants, actually. <clears throat> What's Stephen Fry doing at this point? Is he just rolling his eyes? Has is, is he, he got a brandy in his hand as he's uh, listening to this? I don't know. But I think, you know, actually, I think it's great that he's honest about it because I think a lot of people have resorted to those sorts of methods in order to get a bit of sleep because actually that is the bottom line with bipolar. The the difficulty that people have in maintaining a normal pattern of life, including regular sleep, actually means that they're much more vulnerable to mm. becoming manic or becoming depressed. Mm. I, I really wonder what that must be like being the psychiatrist and medical professional for someone who's as big as larger than life as Stephen Fry like I mean how do you even obviously he's clearly human on some level and yet the challenges the you know the things he has to to put up with and do and achieve are just so completely out of the ordinary like I wonder what that's like yeah I well I have no idea I, I think um I think that the challenge also is when someone's manic, they're a little bit more grandiose than they would mm. be otherwise and their plans are grander and their thoughts are huger. And so it might sometimes be difficult when you've got a, like an internationally famous um, comedian and personality like him to say what's normal in his worldview and, and what is clearly, you know, manic. It would be very difficult to draw that line, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, it's just... I'm just so glad even personally uh, and professionally too just for, for everything he's kind of done to shine a light on, on, on mental health issues so just forever in his debt. Um, he's very famously as well, one of, his, uh, uh, one of his fans kind of wrote into him in writing about their depression and he's written, well, I should find it t- today if I can, uh, this kind of beautiful letter back uh, analogising depression and mood to the weather versus climate and uh, there's a few quotes there that I know for a fact that a lot of medical professionals use when, when we're trying to explain these things. And uh, it, it's just beautiful. Though. Forever in that uh, great man's debt. Yeah, I think that's really true. But I suppose the documentary wouldn't be as valuable if it was just about famous, clever people like him who experienced bipolar disorder. It okay. also follows a couple of other people along their journey in life. So there's a guy who's a chef who also mm-hmm. has a few psychotic symptoms um, alongside his mood problems and that causes problems for him because it makes him a bit socially withdrawn and it has an impact on his wife and family. Mm. Um, there's another young woman who actually jumped off a balcony when she was manic um, because she thought she could fly at that oh, point. Man. Yeah, and then there's another woman who really struggles with motivation and energy when she's depressed, and she's a writer, so it causes a big impact on her ability to work. So I really thought it was um, a great selection of different people who mm. had different stories to tell and uh, and all experienced their illness in different ways and struggled with it in different ways. I think uh, I'm probably going to start recommending it 
to people who I meet who have had their first episode of bipolar or schizophrenia mm. um, because um, at the moment I recommend two other books. There's a book by Kay Redfield Jamison called An Unquiet Mind. I don't mm. know if you've heard of that one. I have. Yeah, it's a terrific book about the experience of bipolar disorder and uh, she's a very impressive woman who writes really beautifully about that experience and trying to integrate that really expanded sense of self and possibility when you're manic into who you are as a person when you're not. Uh, and uh, the other book that I've started recommending to people is um, Madness, a memoir, which is by a woman called Kate Richards, who's actually an Australian. Mm-hmm. So she experienced uh, probably a psychotic um, illness. I'm not sure if it was schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, but certainly was very unwell with psychosis and writes incredibly movingly and clearly about what that experience was like for her. So I, I always recommend one of those two books, depending on what people have suffered. Now I might start recommending documentary as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it means a lot coming from you, obviously, seeing that in the greater part of your work, to to get the sense that it's an accurate reflection, that documentary is an accurate reflection of, of what really goes on for people and what it's really like. So I'm going to take that recommendation very seriously. <laughs> well, I think I think that we can all learn from how people how people think about their illness and what it means to them and how they manage it. And I also mm. think that the great thing about this particular documentary was it also had interviews with um, where people were talking to, say, their, their mental health nurse who was their caseworker or to their psychiatrist and making decisions about medication treatment or whether or not to go into hospital. So I think that's really good to see that sort of experience in almost in real time. Anyway, so that's my catch-up for today. Nice. We are now going to talk a little bit about the World Health Organisation. Very topical. Mm-hmm. Dr Sharma, do you have some news for us? Yeah, I do. Now, I say news, but um, when I initially read about this, I just presumed I was reading the headline of The Onion or The Batuta Advocate, one of those satire things that honestly actually don't find hugely funny um, because you know, reality is often far more hilarious uh, than any kind of satire. And it was proven correct. I looked into it and it was real. The World Health Organization, this agency of the UN, the WHO, has appointed as a goodwill ambassador Mr... Robert Mugabe. Oh, man. Just to clarify, this is, yes, Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe, a man with a long list of human rights violations against his name, a man who has reduced to famine a country that used to be the food bowl of Africa and a man who regularly flies to Singapore for his own health care when there's a complete lack of medicines in his own country and doctors and nurses don't get paid. Uh, And... In a conference in Uruguay just a couple of days ago, the new Director General of the WHO, Dr Tedros Ghebreyesus is his name, he said he was honoured that Mugabe agreed to be a goodwill ambassador on the issue of non-infectious, that is non-communicable diseases. And needless to say, the reaction of basically everyone in the world has been, what the F? Yeah, that was mine too, actually, just as you were talking. I know. It's and normally the kind of people who get uh, made UN type ambassadors are like a Katy Perry or a Serena Williams. You rock up to a press conference, you say, let's stop malaria together. You go back to winning Grand Slams, lip syncing, whatever you do. And then, like, you, like you can't stuff this up. It's, it's easy. You just, there's no responsibility. Like, this is a layup, right? And yet the levels on which this is messing with people's head is, is, just, is just unbelievable. And this is the quote that blew me away. So um, this Director General, Mr Tedros, goes um, that Mr Mugabe could use the role of goodwill ambassador to 
influence his peers in his region. And I, I read that and I just, I just closed my eyes. I just lost it for like five minutes. Like God knows Bobby Mugabe has problems influencing his peers at gunpoint. But, but now they're going to be able to look over the barrel of this gun. They're going to see that little like ambassador like lapel pin on his coat and they're going to go, oh, you're an ambassador? Why, why didn't you say so? Let's stop malaria together. It's just, you know, why do we need satire? I, I, I think that now it is redundant. Can I jump in? Absolutely. Well, you should introduce me. I just walked um, in the studio. There was, there was a spare seat and uh, Kent gave me a wink. <laughs> and and we're, very, we're very honoured to have your presence here. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. So, uh, Dr Shane here from Weinstein and Gego. I thought uh, I was just walking past and these guys seemed lonely, so I jumped in. But, you know, it's interesting with Mugabe because, you know, the guy's he's, he's obviously this, you know, incredible mind there we're talking about. You know, I'm not <laughs> sure it's on the right track. But, yeah. but, you know, these are people who you can't control. Hmm. And I just wonder sometimes, I mean, my immediate reaction is, what the, exactly the same as yours. But then I think, well, hang on, who actually being a bit smarter here? Are they trying to manipulate this man in a way that he's not seeing that may actually enable them to get some of their services and some of their, you know, some of their great work into a country that otherwise is exactly, as you say, just been raped and pillaged beyond belief Mm -hmm. in terms of starvation, lack of vaccines, everything else. Mm -hmm. You have a scenario where, well, if we can actually... For just a moment, let this guy think it's his idea, then maybe we can do the work that we haven't been able to do for two decades. Is that it? I mean, it's great to jump and say, outrageous, I wish it was posh spice, and I think, uh, Kent, you were going ginger spice, but yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe here there's an opportunity to manipulate this you know, psychopathic dictator into doing the good work that they otherwise can't do in his country. See, I think that's exactly the idea behind it, the, the intention behind it, except I think pretty much everyone's kind of in agreement. Like, Mugabe is this master manipulator. If you really think you're going to kind of trick him into it, it's just not going to happen. There's just not an ounce of goodwill in this person. But, but no, that's exactly probably the kind of reason but, that led up you, to this. If you think, if you think, think of the idea of um, some, some actress or singer or actor or singer being a goodwill ambassador, frankly, don't sure. give a toss. It means yep. nothing to me. It doesn't, you know, by their very job, they are great at putting, putting on a bullshit show. So to me, that doesn't say anything about the value of the goodwill ambassador program. So if you're just using it for manipulation and you're using it to get things where they need to go, you know, maybe they've tried everything else and this is the last straw. I don't know. It's, um, yeah. I like to th- think that the people at the World Health Organization aren't idiots. And although this may seem like a total moron move, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe well, there's something there. But funny you say that. that are, they, may- are they idiots? Well, uh, they could be. <laughs> you know what? Uh, okay. The, you know, the truthful answer to that is a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and that's okay. Being an idiot, not the biggest sin in the world. So that, that's okay. Like, everyone gets things wrong. But, you know, those are some of the things I, I guess we can, we can cover today, some of the, the flaws with the WHO. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, like any large organisation that has to incorporate multinational partners, there's lots and lots of points of view that have to be accommodated. And that means that consensus views often come out, which seem more like Frankenstein's monster than really anything that's coherent and and sensible with regard to health policy. So, uh, you know, and and communicable diseases are uh, probably a good example of that, you know. That's exactly it. Uh, And that's basically the the chief complaint against the WHO is that it's become so large with so much bureaucracy that it's trying to be all things to all people all the time that really makes it far less uh, effective than it it used to be. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's it's done amazing things uh, in the past when it's come to infectious diseases, so just amazing targets meant for things like smallpox, 
uh, polio, TB, malaria, uh, uh, HIV, AIDS. Um, but then again, there's, uh, there has been an increase in the amount of criticisms that it's been accruing and just the, uh, the kind of pace it's been happening. And to some extent, that's going to happen over time anyway. But uh, there are a lot of people arguing and some, some very respected scientists and panels and, uh, and journals arguing that this is actually due to some structural flaws and inertia that the WHO is kind of accumulating. Uh, I just wanted to cover a couple of things that have happened recently that the WHO has been uh, criticised for to, to varying extents. Some of these things are well known, some of them not so much. So, for example, their, their response to Zika was things was something that was criticised even internally by them, incredibly quite fragmented. And they did very well with Ebola in the end, but one of the, the, the big shames was how late they were to kind of raise the alarm. Again, you know, the, 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 the sense was that there was a bureaucracy that was causing that kind of inertia. Then there was... And, and with, with all those, um, I mean, just to, again, play devil's advocate on that. Sure. All of this criticism is 2020 hindsight stuff. I mean, it's really easy to look back and, you know, shit, guys, you should have known that this thing was going to spread that fast because of one individual who just happened to go to this location on that day. Why didn't you know that? And, and the reality is it's ver- I think it's very easy to critique things. And to me, um, disease propagation is like the weather. You can have a damn good crack at, pro- you know, predicting it. But on the day, in, in the messy environment that is many of the poor countries that these diseases spread rapidly in, it is bloody hard to predict. So, mm. yes, they get some things wrong. Um, would, would we be better if they weren't there at all? Absolutely not. Uh, my, my rule of thumb is always be careful critiquing people who have more responsibilities than yourself. And I think that, that that's, you know, whenever people do it to me, I think, eh, yeah, maybe I've got more responsibilities than you. But I, I look up in the same way mm. and say some of these groups have enormous responsibilities in very complicated scenarios and it's really easy to look back and go, you know, that really screwed up Zika. But... I don't imagine these people sitting around going, okay, let's see how we can screw this up. Like, they, it's, it's best case on the day. And if the structural flaws are there, mm-hmm. like if there are literal structural flaws that are identifiable, that are repeatedly causing these sorts of failures, absolutely got to fix those up. But I've read a lot of this stuff as well, and, and a lot of it comes back to, you know, individual attacks. And I think, yes, there's personalities involved here, let that go. If there's a structural flaw, mm. fix it. But most of the people working for the World Health Organization are working their butt off to do good stuff and they're not going to get it right in a complex environment. Look, I don't think there's any doubting about their intentions at all and there's no doubt that we'll need some a global organization like that. And, you know, there, there's a few things... There's a few examples of things that have happened with them that agree with exactly what you're saying that demonstrate that, for um, which no kind of doubt about. But, you know, things like Ebola, for instance, that was something that was happening kind of in real time where there were literal structural flaws that were kind of causing these problems. Um, To to give the more recent example of Zika, just as a quick example of things that are... The people within the UN say that that are solvable. Um, So the the issue is that it's a very large organisation, but it's got six regional offices Mm -hmm. that we can say, and they all have their own constitutions, and in theory they are supposed to report back to Geneva, in theory. Just six? Like... You know, we're talking about yeah. six billion people. Just six. Wow. Yeah. Well. Well. So you'll you'll see where this heads, right? So, for example, <laughs> when Zika, so when Zika was peaking, I suppose um, the the regional office in the Americas uh, they put out a statement uh, that basically raised the urgency of the matter, and it caused a bit of panic. But it was probably actually quite incredibly accurate. Mm-hmm. That statement went out to the media, and that very day. 
um, officials of the WHO in Geneva are now getting asked questions about it, and they'd only heard about that statement put out right. by the America's office through the media. Yeah. Now, structural flaw, straight yeah, away. Exactly, and, yeah. and and if and if someone working in Geneva makes some misstatement there, I don't blame them personally at all. Like you know, who who wouldn't when you're kind of finding out in those ways? And so there are these issues around communications and you know all these relay switches and pathways it's supposed to to get through where things you know, can't be made more efficient. There's so a lot of the, the criticisms that are coming you know, at, at the WHO are actually coming from people who work within it and who've worked mm. with uh, organisations, I guess, in, in parallel with it. So this isn't... So I'd, I'd put that down as, you know, a third-tier issue, you know, minor communication flaw. I mean, with regards to the WHO's ability to respond on the ground to disease vectors and so forth, I mean, that kind of stuff is third-tier. The first-tier stuff, as in literally the number of people you assign to, you know, the death category as a result of their poor or, or flawed structural problems. That's first-tier stuff. If there's some minor, you know, communication stuff that pisses a few people off in Geneva, you know, frankly, big deal happens in politics every day of the week and should be fixed, absolutely well, should be fixed. And, you know, Twitter's probably fixing it whether they like it or not yeah. um, in terms of the information flow. But it's not a structural flaw that causes deaths. And I think that's where, if, if there's real critique of the WHO, that's where it should go. And mm. to me, I'd want to see the evidence of that. And when that comes out, then bang, yeah, say, hey, they didn't deal with Zika well. People died as a result. People didn't get the news until the following day. Mm, well, know. okay, so I, I probably could have used a more severe example of uh, them not raising the alarm early enough in Sierra Leone when they were being pressured by uh, by, by Medicine Sans Frontier, etc., to do so. Mm. So I, I think there, there genuinely are instances where lives were kind yeah, of lost. Yeah, that's, a, that's it, a bit of one. Yeah, yeah th- exactly. And I probably sh- should have raised that first. But again, this is not a thing to you know abolish the, the WHO or anything like that. But it, it, it's just an interesting example of when an organisation just is... When you call yourself the World Health Organization, I guess people have these enormous expectations, and yet it just takes the system a while to perhaps catch up and deal with these things. And some things are perhaps just better compartmentalized and and dealt with or delegated by by someone else. It's like Maybe the US having... in the in the World Series. It's not really the world. <laughs> Not really, let's be honest. I was just going to say, maybe having Robert Mugabe um, as an advisor who clearly doesn't need to um, consult with anybody or, you know, <laughs> let anyone know about his decisions might mean that there's a lot of, you know, efficiency. We might be seeing a far more streamlined uh, <laughs> yeah. WHO. But these, these things are completely different things, right? I mean, if, there's, if, there's a structural, if there are structural flaws in the World Health Organization that, you know, fixing them could lead to some sort of optimization of the way they do their job, absolutely that's mm. what should be done. The decision around the Mugabe appointment, that's a completely different issue, completely separate to any structural flaws that might exist in the way they operate their business. And and I think the questions around Mugabe's appointment, yeah, people should ask and hopefully they'll get some answers. They probably won't get the answers that are real. I suspect that's far more entrenched and strategic, but, you know, it, it does look bad. I'll give you that. The optics are bad. bad. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, I mean, Posh Boys would look bad too. But, you know. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think she looks pretty good. <laughs> um, but I, I take your point. And I also think um, maybe the other implication of what's just happened is a sort of a shift towards perhaps the Africas and other parts of the world away from the primacy of Geneva as the most important mm. place to be determining health policy. And, pu- and push- pushing it where where the problems exist the most is actually a very important scenario. I mean, we have great operations of the World Health Organization in Australia. They're fantastic, um, but they're not in the conditions that they would see in some of the African nations. Not yeah, at all. It's a different right. game. Yeah. Absolutely. So... 
uh, extensive discussion about the World Health Organization and its new Goodwill Ambassador. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We've had an extremely intense and heated debate, which I wish you'd been privy to over the course of the last couple of minutes. Paul. Is that what you call intense here in the medical world? Jeez, I'm from physics. Like, we didn't even use any weapons. Yeah, no, nothing was broken. Nothing was broken. Yeah, that's true. Oh, I, I should probably call it extremely civilised. But certainly we have different points of view, which I would have loved to share with you all, but never mind. We don't have time today. Got to move on to the next issue, which I'd like to canvas with my panellists, which is the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill. Um, and as I mentioned before the break, this passed the lower house of the Victorian Parliament just two days ago. And I think this is huge news. There's been no bill relating to euthanasia that's passed any Australian Parliament since 20 years ago when the Northern Territory Government mm. passed their bill, which was then promptly overturned by the Federal Government. And I want to give you a little bit of context, really, before we talk about the nuts and bolts of the bill and what's actually happened, because it's a quite, it's quite a spectacular story. Um, it's been debated for several days since Tuesday, including a marathon session which went through the night on Thursday night. It was finally brought to a vote in the Parliament on Friday morning and it passed by a margin of 47 to 37. Um, this is only the first hurdle for the legislation. Uh, it gets through the Legislative Council. Victoria will be the first state to pass such legislation and will join the Netherlands, Switzerland and several American states, including Nevada and Oregon, which have had assisted dying legislation for you know almost 20 years. So, context. From these places overseas that I've just mentioned, because that experience did inform the way the legislation was framed. Uh, And I suppose the experience overseas over the last couple of decades has suggested that the worst fears of people opposing this legislation probably not founded. Um, Chief amongst which has been this idea of the slippery slope argument, that more and more categories of people will then uh, rush to take advantage of the legislation and will have this huge avalanche of people um, going through assisted dying. Um, in those places where those deaths are legal, they make up between 0.3% and 4% of all deaths. And so because that's been fairly stable over time, it doesn't suggest that that's actually a risk. Um, I suppose the other thing that people are concerned about um, is uh, the idea that um, people who don't necessarily fit into the current categories might either be coerced or feel themselves vulnerable to, to coercion and actually assent to assisted dying when it's not actually their wish. And I suppose that's pretty hard to that's pretty hard to measure, really. Um, it certainly wouldn't be borne out in any of the, the counting of the legislation that's happened overseas. Presumably, it's an interesting category of it, though, isn't it? Because I often think that if you're in an environment where the people around you are so mean and, and evil... Um, they'll probably find a way to screw you over anyway. And the assisted dying legislation's not really going to be their pathway. So whether it was there or not, they would probably, whether they're putting something in your coffee every day or whatever else, they probably still find a way to do that. Whereas what this really deals with is the category of people who are, you know, just in intense pain. They are, they are making a very conscious choice to want to go down this pathway. And the people around them, You know, and I could be completely wrong here, but I suspect we'd love to see an ease to their suffering, but certainly don't want to see their loved ones gone. So, you know, they wouldn't be the ones necessarily championing it. They'd be the ones saying, well, you know, if that's that's their choice, very much their choice, and they have to make that, I can't. I'll keep caring for them as long as necessary. Is that... Is that sort of the... That's what you would hope, I think. Mm. And and certainly that's the way it seems this legislation has been framed. So um, I, I might just also describe 
um, a little bit about the legislation. But before I do, just some context also here um, to, to know that, in fact, Australians by and large overwhelmingly support this legislation. So um, a recent poll by Essential Research suggested that about 71% of people uh, in Australia would support assisted dying legislation. That was um, in August this year. In 2012, a very similar poll run by a different research company suggested about 76%. And then more recently, for some reason, in Frankston and Beaumaris, uh, people were surveyed on this issue. And about <laughs> <laughs> Why those two suburbs? I have no idea. Yeah. But uh, about 86% of those people felt that it was um, it was a, a, they were in favour of the legislation. So that's a lot of people. That's really an overwhelming... And, and that's not even to mention the people who are close to being in that position, people who mm. are approaching end of life and have chronic diseases that might end in that way. Like, yeah, I mean, th- these are just kind of perfectly well people who perhaps you know, know off someone or have thought about the concept. So you'd, you'd really wonder what, what the numbers are of the people who are... You know, having to actually potentially make those kind of decisions about their the, life. There's, there's I think, a, a sort of misidea here that Australians are deeply, you know, backward people. I mean, I actually, I actually mean, it's like with the same-sex marriage scenario, you know, we're actually a very progressive community and the numbers that you're seeing don't really surprise me. Mm. Our laws might be quite a distance behind <laughs> where our people are at the moment. That's that's often my view. But, but I think, yeah, that doesn't surprise me that so many people are, you know, in that sort of that camp. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm so surprised then that the laws don't keep pace with the community views. And it seems to be, as you say, on a lot of different um, topics that yeah. they don't... Although, although, if you think about it, community views on some topics swing around like a pendulum, you know, that's been knocked by a car kind of thing. So, yeah, you, you do have to be careful there, I think, with changing laws too, too rapidly. You need to have a community settle into a position. And if you think, for example, with same-sex marriage, which is something, you know, I suppose for me personally... I've, I've never had an issue with that idea. I've, I've always thought that way. But, but many of our community have changed their thinking over the last decade in that perspective. So if you base the law on where everyone was thinking, you know, maybe say 20 years ago, then we wouldn't get the outcome we're hoping for now. Whereas if you base it on now, you, you, you know, things have changed. So you've got to be careful where you go to make a law change and make sure that if you want a, a good progressive outcome, you do it at the right time because otherwise you'll potentially get an outcome that you don't want and you're stuck with for a while. Yeah, that's right. And then you have to go about um, reversing, I suppose. Mm. So uh, I suppose let's maybe talk about what actually is in the legislation um, and how it came to this. It's the product of a parliamentary inquiry that actually has been about three years in the making. Um, uh, It's uh, involved quite an extensive consultation with lobby groups and other interest groups in the community and review of submissions to Parliament. And in its final form, essentially the bill allows someone to be prescribed medication to assist with dying if they have a terminal illness and they're expected to survive for less than 12 months. Hmm. They must be an adult, which in this legislation is defined as being over the age of 18. Um, And in that context, it's interesting that there's a similar bill before the New South Wales Parliament, which defines an adult as over 25. Hmm. Um, And the criterion here is that they must be experiencing intolerable suffering. How do you define that? Well, I guess... Mm. I mean, that was one of the reasons, I think, why there's so such impassioned debate on this topic. Yeah. There were more than 300 amendments proposed over the course of the last four days to this particular bill, and that was one of them. Mm. What is this yeah. thing that we call intolerable? Um, there are some exclusion criteria. People with dementia are not eligible. People with mental illness are not eligible. That's that, a really that's a worry. broad category. I yeah, mean, what does that mean? Wow. Yeah. So we're talking depression? Yep. Like, if I'm depressed that I'm going to die within 12 months, 
Where well, well you, you better hope you don't also have uh, terminal cancer. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're just unlucky you, yeah. enough to have both at the same time, you're totally screwed, pal. Uh, you better have terminal cancer and be happy about it. Yeah. And then <laughs> maybe we can stop your suffering. That's extraordinary. You've got to tell it. Has this cabinet mental illness to yeah, see? Yeah, yeah, go on. I'm sorry. Just, sorry. So, We're freaking um, out of here. Yeah, yeah I, I can <laughs> see really that. I'm very concerned. I want to move to reassure you. So you have to see two different doctors, one of whom must know you well. And if either of them feel that there's a mental illness that's impinging on your ability to make decisions, they must refer you to a psychiatrist. Do you know in Victoria these days, I'm just, I'm just speaking for the other suburbs, but a doctor that knows you well... Doesn't what exist. The, what the hell? Well, what is I mean, that? I would, I would presume... Uh, seriously, the idea of the family doctor, mm. for, for some people in, you know, in the nice inner suburbs is still true, I get that, but in many, in the low SES um, drive-through clinics... The family doctor is a thing of the past for many people. So it would be very interesting to know what, how that yeah. context is meant. That's it. I guess if, if you are, have a terminal illness where you are possibly going to die within 12 months, you buy you get that. Get to know the doctor that's mm-hmm. still... Pretty, yeah, pretty yeah, okay, well, give yeah. me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, oh, that's interesting to me. I have a great GP. I would, I'm, I'm very heavily... Yeah. I have a great GP, but she's a long way from where I live. And that, you know, for that reason, I... You know, travel to see a particular person, but if I went in my, you know, where I live, it's it's yeah, totally McDonald's, different. man. It's dri- yes. Nothing against McDonald's, but it's drive through. Yeah, it really is interesting. That's mm. a whole other conversation that I think we should have at some point. <laughs> but anyway, so um, y- this must be a sustained desire that's been um, present for a period of time that's been documented, and again, that's not specifically mm. outlined in the legislation. But you must request at least three times to be assisted in dying in the same day. I, I don't actually think like, that... There's I mean, so much grey here, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, there's so much grey. And a lo- I think a lot of the um, concerns that MPs raised were quite legitimate. They, they were concerned about this. Mm-hmm. They were concerned about the idea of doctor shopping. They were concerned about mm-hmm. the what exactly is the substance that people would be prescribed and how long would it take for them to die and mm-hmm. would there be any pain or any kind of adverse um, consequences for that person. And, um, I mean, that ranged from those kinds of concerns, which I think are fairly legitimate, to ridiculous concerns which emerged on Friday morning, which were like... What if you were taking this medication and suddenly a madman with a machete ran into your room and chopped you up? Would the cause of death be listed as cancer or <laughs> homicide? <Well>. And <laughs> so it, at that it point, depends think, who you're trying to prosecute, doesn't it? Exactly. It's well, um, and that's an interesting point. Did so, an MP actually bring up that example? Yes, that was exactly what they talked it's about good, in Parliament. It's good to see these discussions are going on in our, our <laughs> leadership right. halls, isn't it? That's the exactly machete right. running into the dying person's house and chugging them. Yep. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, actually, to, to your point, um, the consequences if someone wrongfully assists mm. another person to die are pretty serious. So they talk about life imprisonment for any doctor who wrongfully applies this legislation, which again... Well, that in itself promotes doctor shopping, doesn't it? Because a lot of doctors will be sort of reticent to take on this scenario exactly so yeah i mean i think there are lots of lots of Mm. issues which i think um probably need to be ironed out and for that reason and for that reason i think they've proposed a sort of an 18 month term where this legislation will be um under review so Mm. that some of these little wrinkles some quite big wrinkles might be ironed out before Mm. the final legislation is actually intolerable pain scenario that concept there's only one human being in any situation that can actually make that determination. And that's everyone has different pain level of tolerance. So the only person who can make that decision is the individual in question. So it's hard to see how they would apply a measure to that. Well, 
It's true, but the term is actually suffering. 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 So, and I think suffering has a psychological dimension mm. as well as a physical yeah. dimension. And what I find interesting about some of the research that's come out from other places around the world is that a lot of people who access this particular option only a third of them actually use it as a means to die. So actually having the idea that you have some control over what eventually happens to you and that, that you're not going to be pushed beyond what you can tolerate is in itself, I think, psychologically um, quite mm. um, Helpful. important yeah. For, yeah. for people to have some sense that they can do something if it becomes too much for them to bear. So I think, you know, suffering is a really complex concept and something which is very difficult yeah. to be definitive about. Now, one of the other things that I'm sure someone has brought up is this concept of a terminal illness that's going to end things in 12 months, only those people being subject to this. Uh, so is there any guidance on who makes that judgment and you know, what chance of miraculous cure is considered too small or is that one of the things that's going to be ironed out in the next 18 months? That's one of those things. Yeah. So this is very, I, I feel as though this is very preliminary legislation and I think that is one of the concerns that people have um, about about um, putting it all together at this point. I mean, even the Deputy Premier, James Molino, actually moved that an amendment, which would essentially tank the bill, um, would be placed on Tuesday. Mm. And then he got a very nasty text message from the Minister for Health, which contained a bad word. Yeah, saw that. Mm. Mm. So, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about this. People feel extremely strongly. People have very strong views one way or the other. And one of the features of the debate in Parliament was actually people telling their personal story of people that they love who've died in what appears to be intolerable suffering. Well, I was just going to say, I'd like to see every member of our Parliament who is going to vote on this issue interact in some way with a family or actual individual who is going through this right now or who has recently so that they have proper context because it's easy to sit at a distance and make ethical choices about this. But when you're in the room and it's going on, it's a different game. That's right. Yeah, I think... You just have to have the context. Yeah, that's the arena in which those decisions have to be made, not in kind of boardrooms or ethics Mm. classrooms when you really actually interact with those people because we are talking about the people who are suffering, their lived experience, and that is the metric by which you have to to, to adjust everything. So uh, it's going to be... And I can appreciate there are so many wrinkles, like like you've mentioned earlier, and yet it's only when we kind of move forward a little bit, just a little bit, by getting pieces perhaps like this legislation through that we can start to adjust those things otherwise you know you're never going to end up with something that's you know perfectly perfect mm. it's good it's good it's good it's good news but it's a it's a pathway well yeah. it's it's good news in a preliminary form mm, because as exactly. i mentioned it still has to pass the legislative council yep. that hasn't happened yet that'll happen in about two weeks and in the meantime enormous amounts of pressure are being applied on Ooh, victorian yeah. parliamentarians um including through the media so the first person i think um on the federal stage to weigh in was in fact paul keating earlier this week famously of catholic uh, faith and uh he said Uh, voluntary assisted dying would be an unacceptable departure in our approach to human existence and what it means to be human. He then called the legislation deeply regressive and said what this means is the civic guidance provided by the state in our second largest state here in Victoria is void when it comes to the protection of our most valuable asset to do or to cause to abrogate the core human instinct to survive and live for the spirit to hang on against physical deprivation is to turn one's back on the compulsion built into the hundreds of thousands of years of our evolution. Wow. Yes. 
Big, yeah. big stuff. In, yeah. in a big stuff. You know, you've got to hope one day when it's his turn he goes in his sleep because otherwise he's going to wish <laughs> that this had been passed. It, it, it's hard. Right. It's, it's, it's very easy to sit on a moral high horse if you're, you're not engaged with it. And many people come from a very different viewpoint, from a religious viewpoint, where this is, this is a very, very serious crime. It, and I don't mean in a judicial sense. Mm. And so getting past that for some people is going to be not impossible. And, but for, for the rest of us... You know, this is not about imposing your views on everyone else's. It's about being able to make your own choices. And to me, that's what the legislation's about. That's right. And in Paul Keating's statement, I think inbuilt into that is so much disempowerment for the person whom that decision, who was going to be making that decision ultimately, um, as if that this is something that's going to be subjected onto them by the rest of society, not actually that person's own will. And I think that's the limitation it has to, uh, we have to, to meet. I kind of completely respect what you're saying. It is a great uh, you know, sin uh, by a lot of people's belief systems, but you know, that's, I think that's the, the, the fine line where we're really getting to have to interact and go, well, whose who's decision is it, really? Yeah. I'm getting out of here. I've got to go prepare for my oh, show. Oh, sorry. Great Thank to you very much you for your contribution. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> great having you. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Talking a little bit about what the real implications of Paul Keating's statement might have been for the implications of um, the individual when faced with who's going to pay for this kind of um, extended treatment of my cancer or my other terminal illness. Um, And this is an issue which has in fact been considered in the Victorian Parliament uh, because of course... Um, we need to think about whether or not this kind of uh, treatment might be accessible through Medicare uh, and and whether or not uh, private health insurers would continue to pay for this kind of treatment or would continue to pay for other kinds of treatment which wouldn't include assisted dying. Very controversial. Oh, man, hearing that, I just went, yeah, this debate got even more complicated than it could have. It kind of blew my mind when it was mentioned off air a few few minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And I, I think that um, it's not just the federal uh, politicians who are weighing in on this. It's actually the AMA itself, which is riven by dissent. So um, the past federal president of the AMA, Brian Owler, was heavily involved in the drafting of this particular legislation and was involved in the parliamentary inquiry that preceded it. The current federal AMA president has actually sent out a couple of tweets, possibly in the middle of the night a la Trump, um, which which I think are, are pretty... Um, a derogatory about the whole idea. So um, this is Michael Gannon. He he tweeted, uh, don't forever alter society because a few powerful people see their parents die. And then linked to an article in The Spectator, which effectively nailed his political views to the mast. Um, and then picked a fight with the terminology used, tweeting, it's called hashtag euthanasia, hashtag, hashtag physician-assisted suicide. Dressing it up, sanitising it, hashtag voluntary-assisted dying is called euphemasia. And then he was rebuked by the Victorian AMA, um, which issued an apology on his behalf to the Victorian Premier, the Health Minister, AMA members and anyone else who was offended. Um, so I, I really think that it's, it's a fascinating debate and one which won't be over very soon. And of course, not to be outdone, just yesterday, our former Prime Minister Tony Abbott weighed in saying to the Australian, of course, I think we'll regard this as a sad milestone in our decline as a decent society. Wow. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, he, he explained himself a bit further. He went on to say, it marks our descent into a country which regards human beings as disposable and we don't want anyone ever to be regarded as useless, worthless or disposable. 
but that's what this legislation says. And he further very specifically and explicitly urged the upper house politicians to block the legislation or at least delay it until after the next election. He said this was so the public had more time to think about it, but I wonder if it's because there might be a change of government at the next election and this legislation might then just sink without a trace. Yeah. So, thoughts, Dr Sharma? Oh, man, I just... I'm looking for a hard surface to slam my head against. Um, it's... You know, as we've already discussed, there are a few legitimate wrinkles kind of worth that are worth talking about uh, but yet, when the debate gets reduced in the ways that you refer to by Tony Abbott, uh, Abbott, Abbott and the, um, the current president of the AMA, uh, it, it really frustrates you because it's really about pulling the debate back from the brink of any kind of decision-making just at all. It's, it's not a legitimate debate. It's just, you know, stop the discussion kind of at any point and the way it's done is with these incredibly reductionist tactics. I can tell you right now, I've been to some behind-the-doors, behind-closed-doors AMA meetings and panels and discussions on these things and I was actually genuinely surprised by how much the medical community is deeply divided by these issues and I've got my suspicions that uh, a lot of these disagreements are, are not particularly secular, um, that there are uh, other beliefs at, at kind of play here that, that really frustrate me. Um, but, you know, it's tough. It's, I think it's one thing to, to, to raise legitimate concerns about wrinkles, uh, but then you know, just actually trying to drag the debate away from being a debate and uh, you know, almost putting like a little kind of little blockade against it, this whole sanctity of life stuff as if that this should prevent the actual debate from happening is incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I think that's right. Because um, this is really the only first, only the first step. And I suppose the other thing to be aware of is that this legislation, as has already become very clear, is very closely monitored by everyone around Australia and probably internationally because, again, it's a huge step uh, into an uncharted future. So I suppose we just have to wait and watch. Um, and see what happens. But in the meantime, um, we'll continue to report on it uh, and we'll, we'll bring back um, all of our thoughts and uh, anything that we've gained from <laughs> the multimedia um, here at Radiotherapy, your first stop for medical and psychiatric news. Bye-bye, everybody. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.